Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Alabest. Today we will be discussing The Sacred Hoop, Recovering the Feminine in American Indian Traditions by Paula Gunn Allen, written in 1986. My reading partner for today is the amazing Sherry Crawford, whom listeners will remember from way back at the very beginning of our podcast project from our episodes on Gerda Lerner's The Creation of Patriarchy. So welcome back, Sherry. Thank you so much for being here again. We're so excited to have you. Amy, thank you so much for inviting me back. It's been a privilege. To start the discussion, we always talk about the author. And this was, she's such an interesting person and made Mm -hmm. such a huge contribution to this area of history. So, Paula Gunn Allen was born Paula Marie Francis to Elias Lee Francis, who is a former lieutenant governor of New Mexico, and Ethel Francis. She was born in 1939. She grew up on the Cubero, or it's probably pronounced Cubero, land grant in New Mexico, which is a Spanish-Mexican land grant village bordering the Laguna Pueblo Reservation. Paula Gunn Allen was of mixed Laguna, Sioux, Scottish, and Lebanese-American descent, and she always identified most closely with the Laguna, among whom she spent her childhood. Both her father's Lebanese and her mother's Laguna Pueblo heritages shaped her critical and creative vision. Allen was a powerful voice in Native American literature and the study of American literature. She was also a founding mother of the contemporary women's spirituality movement. Her most recent work, Pocahontas, Medicine Woman, Spy, Entrepreneur, Diplomat, received a Pulitzer Prize nomination. The Sacred Hoop, Recovering the Feminine in American Indian Traditions, which is a collection of critical essays, and obviously the book that we're discussing today, is a cornerstone in the study of American Indian culture and gender. And her edited anthology, Studies in American Indian Literature, Critical Essays, and Course Designs, laid the foundation for the study of Native American literature. And she promoted and popularized the works of other Native American writers through several anthologies, which we have listed on our website for our listeners who are interested in digging deeper into Paula Gunn Allen's work. So she was a prolific writer. She published six volumes of poetry, and she published a novel, and her creative and critical work has been widely anthologized. So it appears in lots and lots of other compilations of work. Allen received her BA degree in English in 1966 and her MFA in creative writing in 1968, both from the University of Oregon. She earned her PhD in American Studies in 1976 from the University of New Mexico, and then she taught at Fort Lewis College in Colorado and the College of San Mateo, the San Diego State University, San Francisco State University, and the University of New Mexico Albuquerque, prior to joining the faculty at the University of California, Berkeley, where she became a professor of Native American and Ethnic Studies. In 1999, she retired from the University of California, Los Angeles, as a professor of English, Creative Writing, and American Indian Studies. Um, She also received many awards, including postdoctoral fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Ford Foundation with its National Research Council, and many, many other awards that are listed on the website. 
She passed away at her home in Fort Bragg, California on May 29th, 2008, after a prolonged illness at the age of 68. The website says that family and friends surrounded her at the time of her passing, and she's survived by a daughter, two granddaughters, two sisters, and one brother, and two sons preceded her in death. So that's a bit about Paula Gunn Allen. Yeah, I I also think the summary from Wikipedia is helpful as we start. Based on her own experiences and her study of Native American cultures, Paula Gunn Allen wrote The Sacred Hoop, Recovering the Feminine in American Indian Traditions. This groundbreaking work argued that the dominant cultural view of Native American societies was biased and that European explorers and colonizers understood the Native peoples through the patriarchal lens. Gunn described the central role women played in many Native American cultures, including roles in political leadership, which were either downplayed or missed entirely by explorers and scholars from the male-dominated European cultures. Allen argued that most Native Americans at the time of European contact were matrifocal and egalitarian, with only a small percentage reflecting the European patriarchal pattern. The American Indian movement has itself been criticized by feminists as being sexist. In spite of all this, Allen's book and subsequent work has proved highly influential, encouraging other feminist studies of Native American cultures and literature, including an emergence of indigenous feminism. It remains a classic text of Native American studies and women's studies programs. So there. I'm glad you read that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really important and and great. And actually, that's a really great segue into the first part that we wanted to share because you just set up kind of her, I would say one of the main themes in the book. I don't know if you agree, but something that just kind of underlies everything is her argument that Native Americans were really very misunderstood because it was a patriarchal white culture that was interpreting them, that was writing down what they perceived about the Native people. And she's saying, it's wrong. They missed, They completely misunderstood us. Um, and that was one of her main arguments, right? Oh, that message was all throughout the chapters I read. Yeah. Yeah. So the second point that I wanted to bring out from the introduction is she talks about women's involvement in many traditional Native American cultures. So like their involvement in the family structures and in the community structures. And um, before I read this quote, I'll just remind listeners of some of the word definitions that we talked about at the very, very beginning of of the podcast in the, the episode on the chalice and the blade, where we talked about matrilocality. So matra, M-A-T, is like madre in Spanish or mater in Latin. And so that always refers to a mother. So something that's matrilocal would be if a man and a woman get married, then the the groom would come to live with the woman's family. And then matrifocal obviously just means focused on the mother. Um, and then matrilinear would mean tracing the lineage through the mother. And that can happen through understanding genetic lines of descent, or sometimes it can even mean in names. So you pass your you inherit your mother's name rather than your father's. Anyway, okay, with all of those definitions, Paula Gunn Allen says, there were and are gynocracies. 
and now I have to do another definition, but gyno would refer to woman, of course. There were and are gynocracies, that is, woman-centered tribal societies in which matrilocality, matrifocality, matrilinearity, maternal control of household goods and resources, and female deities of the magnitude of the Christian God were and are present and active features of traditional tribal life. She goes on to say, traditional tribal lifestyles are more often gynocratic than not, and they are never patriarchal. These features make understanding tribal cultures essential to all responsible activists who seek life-affirming social change that can result in a real decrease in human and planetary destruction and in a real increase in quality of life for all inhabitants of planet Earth. The third part of the introduction that I wanted to um, share is just the the impact overall of the European colonizers on Native American cultures. And we'll talk more about this in subsequent chapters, but I just wanted to bring out this quote. She says, quote, the colonizers saw, and rightly, that as long as women held unquestioned power, attempts at total conquest of the continents were bound to fail. In the centuries since the first attempts at colonization in the early 1500s, the invaders have exerted every effort to remove Indian women from every position of authority, to obliterate all records pertaining to gynocratic social systems, and to ensure that no American and few American Indians would remember that gynocracy was the primary social order of Indian America prior to 1800. Mm. Western studies of American Indian tribal systems are erroneous at base because they view tribalism from the cultural bias of patriarchy and thus either discount, degrade, or conceal gynocratic features or recontextualize those features so that they will appear patriarchal. End quote. Well, that says it all. I mean, Again, that's like one of her, that's a main thesis of this book, that it's right. it, the story has been told wrong. Yeah. So. Okay, the next chapter that we wanted to talk about is entitled, When Women Throw Down Bundles. And this is a sad, sad, sad chapter, but I thought it was important to bring out. Um, it talks about how Native American nations were subjugated. And again, it's just so powerful to me because it was the story told from the point of view of a Native American and a woman. And we just don't hear about the conflict from that perspective. Never, ever have I heard about, uh, you know, that perspective. So she says, quote, the Iroquois story is currently one of the best chronicles of the overthrow of the gynocracy. Material about the status of women in many nations are lacking. Any original documentation that exists is buried under the flood of readily available published material written from the colonizer's patriarchal perspective, almost all of which is based on the white man's belief in universal male dominance. Male dominance may have characterized a number of tribes, but it was by no means as universal as colonialist propaganda has led us to believe." End quote. So again, she's she's highlighting the diversity within the nations, right? There were patriarchal nations that were, nations that were more patriarchal, and some that were less. So I mean, there's such diversity with between them. So it's it's she does acknowledge that. 
Right. But again, she just says that the, the people who were recording the histories just had such a biased lens according to what they really believed and what they were used to seeing. So they saw, saw what they expected to see. She says, quote, under the old laws, the Iroquois were a mother-centered, mother-right people whose political organization was based on the central authority of the matrons, the mothers of the longhouses, which were like the clans. Mm -hmm. She says, at the end of the Revolutionary War, the Americans declared the Iroquois living on the American side of the United States-Canadian border defeated, pressed from all sides, their fields burned and salted their daily life disrupted, and the traditional power of the matrons under assault from the missionaries who flocked to Iroquois country to civilize them, the recently powerful Iroquois became a subject captive people. The longhouse declined in importance, and eventually Iroquois women were firmly under the thumb of Christian patriarchy. So it's it's devastating, and it I mean, it's hard even... It's hard for Christians to listen to that too. And it's important, I think, to listen to it and realize what it felt like to have people come in and, and quote unquote, civilize you and um, take away and destroy your way of life. And what, and you know, Alan's, one of her main points is specifically what that did to women. So um, she goes on after you know, chronicling what happened to the Iroquois, she talks about the Algonquin people. And both of those nations were on the East Coast. She talks about the Algonquin people who were described by the conquering Europeans as only having male chiefs. But she says that this is because that's what they expected to see. They assumed universal male leadership. And so they ignored tons of evidence that there were also female chiefs. And um, there's a word that's translated as something like empress. And in addition, every person's name that the Europeans didn't know or understand, they recorded as male. And Ooh. then, and they also, if they didn't know, like the default was male. And then the default also, if they didn't know their status within the community, they recorded those names as commoners in society. So really, it's like, how can we trust that record if they didn't? Because of course they wouldn't have known. They wouldn't have known the nuance and the complexities of right. this completely foreign society. Also because they disdained it, right? Like they, right. they had no respect for it. So those are the records that we're trusting that would be describing these peoples. It really like, I'd never, I hadn't really given enough thought to this issue before, but um, I'll just share a couple of quotes. She says, quote, this falsifies the record of a people who are not able to set it straight. It reinforces patriarchal socialization among all Americans who are thus led to believe that there have never been any alternative structures. Mm. End quote. That's interesting too, right? It really is. An outsider's perspective can't ever be accurate, right? It's just yeah. the outsider's perspective. Yeah. So she then, I'm going to read just a couple more things. She talks about the Cherokee as well. And she, this is another example of women's power in their native social structure. It says, quote, Cherokee women had the power to decide the fate of captives. The decisions had to be made by female clan heads because a captive who was to live would be adopted into one of the families whose affairs were directed by the clan mothers. The clan mothers also had the right to wage war. 
and Indian women were famous warriors and powerful voices in the councils. But, um, she says, quote, by the time the Removal Act was under consideration by Congress in the early 1800s, many of these British-educated men and men with little Cherokee blood wielded considerable power over the nation's policies. So I've skipped a little bit. I think she, she's talking about men who were technically part of the, the Cherokee Nation, but had been educated in basically like the European schools mm -hmm. and maybe even intermarried, right? Families that had intermarried between Native and, and European people then these men were gaining more influence within the nations, right? So at this point, returning to the quote, she says, in the ensuing struggle, women endured rape and murder, but they had no voice in the future direction of the Cherokee nation. The Cherokee were by this time highly stratified, though they had been much less so before this period, and many were Christianized. The male leadership bought and sold not only black men and women, but also men and women of neighboring tribes. The women of the leadership retreated to Bible classes, sewing circles, and petticoats that rivaled those worn by their white sisters. Mm. And so she just describes, you know, there was war, but then there was also just kind of a cultural, like a gradual cultural loss and obliteration because she describes how these Cherokee women you know, would end up marrying white ministers. Right. And then, you know, within a couple of generations, their culture completely disappeared from those families, right? They just became so anglicized right. that it disappeared. And that leads me to the last part I want to talk about in this chapter, where she elaborates more on just this process of transforming the Native American societies into European societies. So she says, quote, Affecting the social transformation from egalitarian gynocentric systems to hierarchical patriarchal systems requires meeting four objectives. The first is accomplished when the primacy of female as creator is displaced and replaced by male gendered creators. The second objective is achieved when tribal governing institutions and their philosophies that are their foundation are destroyed as they were among the Iroquois and the Cherokee. And then she goes on to say that democracy by coercion is hardly democracy in any language. And to some Indians recognizing that fact, the threat of, of extinction is preferable to the ignominy of enslavement in their own land. Mm. The third objective is accomplished when the people are pushed off their lands, deprived of their economic livelihood, and forced to curtail or end altogether pursuits on which their ritual system, philosophy, and subsistence depend. Now dependent on white institutions for survival, tribal systems can ill afford gynocracy when patriarchy, that is survival, requires male dominance. The fourth objective requires that the clan structure be replaced. The women clan heads are replaced by elected male officials and the psychic net that is formed and maintained by the nature of non-authoritarian gynocentricity grounded in respect for diversity of gods and people is thoroughly rent. Mm. Um, so the next chapter that I read was titled Where I Come From is like this. 
and it's a modern American Indian woman's experience. So I guess if I knew more about my heritage, this is where I would place myself. And in reading this, um, I did find a little bit of myself in it. So here's a quote from this chapter. She says, the tribes see women variously, but they do not question the power of femininity. Sometimes they see women as fearful, sometimes peaceful, sometimes omnipotent and omniscient, but they never portray women as mindless, helpless, simple, or oppressed. So that is end quote. So this whole concept of women being mindless and helpless, simple, and oppressed, that is an invention of the colonizers that they brought to the Native American, the Native American Indian woman and, and said that that's how they were, but that's just not true. That's not how these women see themselves. Thanks, Sherry. Um, the next chapter that we want to highlight is called How the West Was Really Won. And I wanted to just talk about two main points, um, and I'll start with a quote. Quote, along with the devaluation of women comes the devaluation of traditional spiritual leaders, female and male, and largely because of their ritual power and status, the devaluation of lesbian and gay tribal members as leaders, shamans, healers, or ritual participants. And so, yeah, people were just able to do the things that felt most natural to them without being stigmatized for it. So the second part that I want to highlight in this chapter is Alan's attribution of violence against women to European misogyny. And I thought this was a really important point. She says, quote, as we articulate a feminine analysis of the effects of colonization, we are more and more able to demonstrate that the colonizer's image of Indian women has, more than any other factor, led to the high incidence of rape and abuse of Indian women by Indian men. This violent behavior is tacitly approved of by the tribes through the refusal of tribal governments across the country and in urban Indian enclaves to address the issue and provide care, shelter, and relief for the women victims and competent, useful treatment for the offenders. The white and recently Indian image of powerful Indian women as traitors is another chapter in the patriarchal folktale that begins with Eve causing Adam's fall from grace into divine disgrace. Um, and I thought that this was a really important point, but that's what I had for this chapter, Sherry. Okay. Um, this is the last chapter that I'm going to be discussing is titled angry women are building issues and struggles facing American Indian women today. So in this brief chapter, she just talks about how really American Indian women are are just fighting for their own survival. And it is the survival of the self, but also the survival of any grasp of heritage um, or, or culture. She says specifically, quote, the U.S. government continues its policy of termination, relocation, removal, and assimilation, along with the destruction of wilderness, reservation land, and its resources, and severe curtailment of hunting, fishing, timber harvesting, and water use rights. 
end quote. So these are the things that American, so this was published in 1986 and here in 2021, these issues are still very, very present every single day Mm -hmm. that the U.S. government continues to um, control and essentially with the desire to obliterate these cultures. And, and so in, in that, since the U.S. government has been doing this, the result is that, quote, their population goes hungry, homeless, impoverished, and cut out. So then Americans see the native population as less than, but it's because America has taken everything from them. And so when they don't mm-hmm. have access to all of the things that we have access to, how can they thrive? She goes on to say that it's not just America. She says every single government, left, right, or centrist in the Western Hemisphere is consciously or subconsciously dedicated to the extinction of those tribal people who live within its borders. Here's another quote from this chapter. She says, we survive war and conquest. We survive colonization, acculturation, assimilation. We survive beating, rape, starvation, sterilization abandonment, neglect, death of our children, our loved ones, destruction of our land, our homes, our past, and our future. We survive, and we do more than just survive. We bond, we care, we fight, we teach, we nurse, we bear, we feed, we earn, we laugh, we love, we hang in there no matter what. The resilience in this quote just brings me to tears because I can feel this strength inside me. Not that I've ever endured what these women have endured, but I feel that some source of that has to be in me. And that no matter what hardships come to me, which are nothing compared to what the indigenous people have endured, I can wake up the next day and use my strengths to make a better society. Um, That list at the end, we bond, we care, we fight, we teach, we nurse, we bear. It's so beautiful. And as women, we do all of that. And we do it because (laughs) like that deep, deep need to survive exists. She goes on to talk about why Indigenous women behave the way they do and why Indigenous men behave the way they do has a lot to do with American popular media. The quote here is, the American popular media image of Indian people as savages with no conscience, no compassion, and no sense of the value of human life and human dignity was hardly true of the tribes. However, it was true of the invaders. But as Adolf Hitler noted a little over 50 years ago, if you tell a lie big enough and often enough, it will be believed, end quote. Um, so she goes on to say that women are, they have to fight for survival at every level, including at the level of government. So they're fighting internally, they're fighting 
in their families. They're fighting in their tribes. They're fighting at the local government level and then also at the federal government level. They're just being met with resistance. Quote, we are doing all we can as mothers and grandmothers, as family members and tribal members, as professionals, workers, artists, shamans, leaders, chiefs, speakers, writers, and organizers. We daily demonstrate that we have no intention of disappearing, of being silent, or of quietly acquiescing in our extinction. End quote. Oh, Sherry, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that brings us to the end of the episode, actually. Um, I'm wondering if, as we wrap up, if you have any special takeaway or a last quote from the book or anything that you'd like to, um, to end with. Um, yes, this is a passage in the chapter, The Ways of Our Grandmothers. Quote, in the beginning was thought, and her name was woman, the mother, the grandmother recognized from earliest times into the present among those peoples of the Americas who kept to the eldest traditions. To her, we owe our lives, and from her comes our ability to endure, regardless of the concerted assaults on our, on her, being for the past 500 years of colonization. She is the old woman who tends the fires of life. She is the old woman spider who weaves us together in a fabric of interconnection. She is the eldest God, the one who remembers and re-remembers. And though the history of the past 500 years has taught us bitterness and helpless rage, we endure into the present, alive, certain of our significance, certain of her centrality, her identity, as the sacred hoop of being. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you, Amy, for having me.